Well, I want to begin with our reading this morning from Luke chapter 11 and verse 1 and Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Listen for the word of the Lord. He was praying in a certain place, and after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Pray then in this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Gracious Lord, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will speak your truth, your grace, and your wisdom to us. Open our hearts that we might receive your word as we seek a living encounter with your living word, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, today we're going to begin and embark on a journey, a series of messages for the next six weeks where we're going to look at everything that Jesus taught about prayer. And we're going to see how he actually prayed. And we'll have a primary focus in the next six weeks on the Lord's Prayer, which is a pattern of prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. As we think about this, when it comes to prayer, almost every one of us prays if not every one. Gallup polls show that almost 80% of Americans say that they pray on some occasion. And this even includes atheists and agnostics. They don't really know why they pray, but we find ourselves sometimes praying. And the question is, well, how should we pray? What's the posture? What words should we use? What's okay to ask for and what's not okay to ask for? And so to be honest, in my own life, uh, prayer is a struggle. It is hard work. Um, For me, I have noticed that over the years that I've been a Christian and even as a pastor, that my prayers tend to be kind of redundant. Um, I can kind of say the same thing over and over again. And sometimes I wonder if God might get a little bored with my prayers. Like, hey, can't you say anything more interesting, um, you know, to me and to talk about? And so during this ser- series of sermons, we're gonna, going to explore what de- Jesus teaches about prayer so that we can become better at praying, so that we can become more effective in our prayers, so that we can become more comfortable in our prayers and more confident in prayer, and, uh, and so that we can pray with greater effectiveness and sincerity. And so why learn to pray from Jesus? Why should we look to Jesus to teach us how to pray? Well, because Jesus is the only human being on the face of the earth who really understands and fully understands the role of prayer, what it is to offer prayer, and what it is to receive prayer. People prayed to Jesus. Jesus prayed to the Father. And so no one is really quite like Jesus in terms of teaching us how to pray and how prayer works and what prayer means. And so, as I said, we're going to focus on the Lord's Prayer, taking it a little piece at a time each week. Did you know that on any given weekend, there have got to be a billion people around the world who pray the Lord's Prayer together on Sunday? 
There are two to two and a half billion Christians in the world, seven billion people, and so I, I would just assume that half of them, at least, pray the Lord's Prayer every Sunday, at least once. And we are among that billion around the world who pray this prayer every single week together in worship. And I wonder how many languages it is prayed around the world. When I was ordained at my ordination service, there was a traditional Taiwanese choir that sang this song, uh, the Lord's Prayer, that sang it in, the, in their native tongue, and it was beautiful. And so for many of us, praying the Lord's Prayer is, is like a pattern or a regular rhythm of our lives. We know the prayer. We have it memorized. We memorize it when we're children in Sunday school or when our parents pray with us before we go to bed. But how many people really understand the prayer? We know it, but we might not really know the words that we're saying or what they mean. And so sometimes we pray it, but we don't really pray it because we don't really understand what its words are about and what they're for. And so that's what we're going to explore in the next six weeks or so. You remember that Jesus was praying once and his disciples, and while he was praying, his disciples, they wanted to learn how to pray too. And so they said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just like John the Baptist taught his disciples how to pray. And then Jesus gave them this prayer. And we find it in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel. In Luke's gospel, Jesus says, pray these words. And then he gives an abbreviated form of the prayer, a shorter form of the prayer. We're looking at Matthew's gospel. In Matthew's gospel, uh, he says, pray in this way or pray like this, so that it's not necessarily exactly word for word, but a pattern of prayer, a way in which we can engage and pray to God uh, using the Lord's Prayer. By the end of the first century, Christians were praying the Lord's Prayer three times a day. You might have known that the Jews prayed three times a day in the morning in the first century at 3 p.m. and then again in the evening. And so by the end of the first century, the Christians were praying the Lord's Prayer three times a day in this way as well. And so we can pray it just exactly as it is, the Lord's Prayer, as we do every week. In fact, I often carry an Anglican prayer beads with me, and I will pray the Lord's Prayer, maybe while I'm sitting at a soccer game or something like that. And, um, but we can also, it can become a pattern where we're looking at what do each of these words and phrases mean, and how does that help us think about how we can expand the prayer even beyond what we find simply in Matthew and in Luke's account. So a quick story. Um, several years ago, I was, I was in Hong Kong, and I was there for educational purposes with a group, and we were studying, and on the last night of our trip, um, they took us to a really nice um, traditional Chinese restaurant for a very traditional Chinese meal. And we had, um, we had a banquet kind of room because we had about 35 people and there were several tables with a very, very large Lazy Susan and a bunch of people around the table and it's traditional Chinese meal, so it's uh, family style and they said it was gonna be a little while and that it m will be several courses. And so the first course came out and it was a little bit of miso and so I enjoyed the first course of miso soup and to me I'm thinking several courses, okay, that's three, appetizer, main course, dessert. 
So the second course came out, and it was filled, the center of the Lazy Susan was filled with dumplings and meatballs, Chinese meatballs. And so I was like, this is great. Here is our main dish. So I ate uh, six dumplings and six meatballs, and I was done. I was full. I was thinking, this is great. I saved just enough room for some ice cream. And then the third course came out, and there was chow mein, and there was very elegant fried rice, and there were Chinese ribs, and I had no room. And I was thinking, I just wanted to go back to the hotel at this point. They're all enjoying each other. And then the next course came out with more elegant Chinese food. And then the next course came out. And then it was a six-course meal by the time that the dessert came. And it was intended to be four to five hours long. And so it's not really just only about the food, but it's about the experience and enjoying one another. And you're supposed to savor every little bite and only try a little bit of each thing and to savor it and to enjoy it. And I suddenly realized that in my American way, I ruined our traditional Chinese meal. And I just wanted to go back to the hotel room. Why do I say this? I say this because this is a lot like how the Lord's Prayer is. You can take it like a McDonald's Happy Meal, put a little ketchup on and shove it down. Or you can savor it. You can try to understand it. You can uh, let it marinate with you. You can seek to understand it and enjoy it and connect with God. And hopefully through that experience, um, it will open your heart up to God even more and connect you to others in an even greater and more powerful way and perhaps ways you hadn't understood before or dreamed of. Jesus said, this then is how you should pray. And then he goes into the Lord's Prayer and let's say the first part together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Okay, now that is a three-point sermon, right? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Our Father. I want you to notice a couple of things here. First, notice how Jesus doesn't say, when you pray, pray my Father. He says, pray our Father. Now, at the first glance, you could, why does he say that? You could say, well, because he, under, he wants to encourage corporate prayer, that we don't just pray individually, but that we pray together. We're part of his body, right? And so we pray corporately. He's our Father. But I think even more deeply than that, he wants us to know that he's not just my Father, but that he is our Father. He is the Father of every single person you're in church with this morning, and every single person you're worshiping with online as well. But he's not just the father of everyone you're in church with. He's also the father of the people who are in that church over there, whatever that church might be. But he's not just the father of the people who are in that church over there. He's also the father for Catholics. He's the father of the Protestants. And for Protestants, he's also the father of the Catholics. We are all his children. For Christians, he's also the Jews' father. And for Jews, he's also the Muslim's father. And for Muslims, he's also the Christian's and the Jew's father. And he's also our LDS neighbor's father. For the atheist or the agnostic, we might look at them and say, you may not believe this or see it to be true, but he's also your father too. You just don't recognize it yet. He's our father. He's our father. 
in a world that is so polarized, where we draw a line and you're on this side and I'm on this side and, and there's us and them. And if I don't agree with you, then I don't want to, this cancel culture, I don't want to have anything to do with you. He, he's for, for Republicans, he's the Democrats' father. And for the Democrats, he's the Republicans' father. And he's the father of all of them and we're all his children. You may not get along with some of your siblings, but they are still your siblings. And Jesus wants us to know this. That's part of what he's teaching here. In John chapter 17, we have recorded um, Jesus' longest prayer in the Gospels, and it was on the night that he was arrested, right before he died. And you know what he prayed in that long prayer? Father, may they be one as you and I are one. Why does he pray that in his last night, so urgent, um, so important to him, his farewell words to the Father? Because he knows how prone we are to divide. He knows how we can do this, how, how that he knows that they are going to divide, that they're going to hate each other, that they're going to have conflicts and split and all of this. And so he says, Father, make them one as you and I are one. He's our father. He's our father. He's our father. So this is interesting. Jesus is teaching us how to address God. He says, call him your Father, our Father. Um, and so it's, now this isn't the only way that we should pray, right? It's just that this becomes a pattern for prayer. So we don't always have to call God Father whenever we pray. We don't always have to, I often will say gracious God or any number of different things. However, um, Jesus is encouraging us to relate to God in this particular way. And why this is interesting is because in the Hebrew Bible, which is Jesus' Bible, right? The only Bible that Jesus knew and read at the time was the Hebrew Bible, what we know as the Old Testament. And in the Hebrew Bible, when God is addressed, God is very, very seldom addressed as Father. There are a few occasions where God is addressed as Father, but most of the time God is addressed with certain other kinds of titles. One in particular is when God was with Moses at the burning bush, and Moses said, well, what should I tell them is your name? How should I, what should I call you? And God says, tell them Yahweh sent you, which, or some say Jehovah, and it means I am that I am. I am. I am existence itself. So Yahweh is the personal name for God, and the Jews would not utter it, uh, that name, because it was too holy for them to utter. But Jesus doesn't say, when you address God, say, dear Yahweh. He doesn't say that. Another name for God in the Old Testament was Elohim, a very common, very used very frequently in the Old Testament, and it's the generic name for God. Sometimes it's El, sometimes it's Elohim, and uh, it simply means God. So Jesus could have said, when you pray, pray, dear God. But Jesus doesn't say that. Another word is Adonai. Adonai means Lord or Master. And Jesus could have said, when you pray, pray, dear Lord or dear Master. But he doesn't say that. He could have taken one of the hundreds of combinations of words. So there's El Roi, which means the God who sees, and Yahweh Yireh, which means the God who provides, or a whole host of other names. There's the name that the Jews often pray even to this day when they address God. They say, King of the Universe. He's the King of the Universe, the Lord of Hosts, the mighty and powerful warrior. He could have said, address God in any of these ways, but he doesn't. He says, call, them, call him our Father. Now, of course, Jesus spoke Aramaic, 
right? And so he didn't use the Hebrew or the Greek term for this. He used the word Abba. And you know this word, Abba. You've heard this before. He says, you know, Jesus says, call him Abba. You've heard it before, and I think that sometimes it tends to maybe be a little too chummy because it, what we know is that it, it, we've heard it say that you can, it means daddy, and so you can kind of call God daddy. And I think that's a little too, you know, chummy unless you're four or five. It works wonderfully. But essentially, Abba was a familiar term that connotes an intimate and personal and deep relationship. So I think we could use the word dad, you know, dad. So, so we have father, and that's essentially what it means. You have father and you have dad. And most of us, we don't use the word father when we talk to our biological fathers. I don't call my dad up and say, hello, father, how are you today? You know, that's quite formal for me. No, I call him, I say, hey, dad, how's it going? How's it going, dad? Lord, please bless my dad. I was thinking about you today, dad. And so there's this familiarity to that connection. This is really remarkable that the God who created the entire cosmos, the king of the universe, Jesus says, call him your dad. Call him your dad. Now I want to pause for a moment and recognize that there are some real challenges for using masculine language to refer to God as father for, for many of us. I found that depending on your um, relationship with your biological father, this can really affect your relationship with God and our ability to use this kind of language and to appropriate it in prayer. Roberta Bondi is Professor Emerita at Candler School of Theology at Emory University, and she wrote this, I grew up in the 40s and 50s with a loving but authoritarian perfectionistic father who left the family when I was 11 like many other people, having transferred to God the Father all the pain I felt around my human father, I simply couldn't get past the father language of the prayer to reach God. I was hurting so much and so mistrustful of God. That may be your experience as well. Others point out that far too often uh, men have been placed at a higher value than women in society, and this kind of language to refer to God perpetuates the, that sort of unfairness in society. And so here's what I would suggest about this. For, for Roberta Bondi, she ended up moving um, to using parent language for a number of years in this prayer. While, on the, w while she was using parent language to engage this prayer, uh, she was also working on her relationship with her father, with her biological father, and going to therapy and working on those issues um, until eventually she came to think about this idea of father, uh, God as father in a very different way. And she was finally able to, with patience and with care and with therapy and with thoughtfulness, she was ultimately able to appropriate, appropriate that language and and understand what I think Jesus was talking about. So a couple of things that I want to say about father and mother. In the Bible, we've, we also find mothering language to describe God. One of the primary things uh, that Jesus tells us in the gospel is that we need to be born again. We need to be born anew. We need to be born from God above. So if God is giving birth to you, is that 
Is that masculine or feminine language? I don't know any fathers who have given birth. Um, so we see this imagery from time to time throughout the Bible with feminine imagery for God and also masculine imagery for God. And so as we all know, God is neither male nor female. We know this. Rembrandt sought to capture this in his painting of the return of the prodigal son with the father having two different hands, one masculine and one feminine. Maybe I have shown you this before, I'm not sure. Um, and so there tends to be, however, so what, what I think Jesus recognized here in this prayer is this sort of struggle that we have. And it, it tends to be that throughout history, mothers tend to be more nurturing than fathers. I mean, that's just, you know, we, we know that from experience. It's not totally 100% true, but generally it's true. And there tends to be for most people, um, but I think this is changing for the better, uh, a closer relationship for mothers with their children. This goes all the way back to the hunter-gatherer days when the mothers and the children were together and the father was out hunting until the children were able to hunt with their father and then they could start to develop that relationship if the father was still alive or around. For many people in Jesus' time, as is true for many people today, um, the relationship with the father is the one that is sometimes lacking, sometimes suffering a little bit more. Some of you have had fathers who have left and never came back, or fathers who were disengaged, or fathers who didn't show you any affection or didn't hug you or kiss you, fathers who were not kind or charitable. This is clearly not the case for most fathers, but it unfortunately is for many. Many have had fathers who, who died early, just like we believe Jesus' earthly father died when he was young, we think. And so perhaps he was appropriating this language in saying, and I love how Pope Francis um, writes about this in his book on the Lord's Prayer, that no matter how disengaged or absent or cruel or abusive or removed or emotionally uninvolved was your biological father, there are no orphans with God. There are no orphans with God. That God is your perfect father that you always wanted and never fully had. He's the father that your earthly father was unable to live up to, whether by his own choices or the choices of others or the circumstances of life itself. He's your protector, your provider, your strength. And so here's kind of what I want to say about that. Your earthly father is not the pattern for God's fatherhood, but God is meant to be the pattern and example of how a human father is meant to be. And so... For dads, I want you to hear this, especially um, those of you who are dads, that when you're trying to figure, to, to figure out, maybe you didn't have an example or a role model, how, does it, how to be a father, um, here's what we need to know. God defines what fatherhood looks like and what it, it means. And our task is to try to live into that, to try to be that kind of loving, steadfast, caring father. And so we're, try, we're meant to try to mirror that for our children. And we don't do it perfectly. We're all colossal failures at it. But, but we're meant to, to do that. That's, that's the aim. And so there was a time when the disciples said to Jesus, show us the Father. And he says, are you kidding? Are you kidding? You've been with me all along. And you haven't seen him yet? I've been trying to show you. And so he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus says. And so if you want to know what God is like intimately, 
you look to see how Jesus treated people. How did he love? And in all of that, we have a picture of the one that we call Father. We don't look at our biological dads to try to understand who is God the Father. We look at Jesus, right? So let's continue in the prayer saying these words. Our Father who art in heaven. Our Father who art in heaven. Now that's an interesting way to address God. Do we have to name God's geographic location when we talk to him? When I call my dad, I don't say, hi dad who lives in Newport Beach, California. I mean, it's kind of an odd thing to say. Why, why do we do that? Um, first of all, in biblical times, as well as today, when we think about the heavens, and Matthew, by the way, uses the word heaven or the heavens 82 times in his gospel. It's more than all the other three gospels combined. And so it's a major theme in the gospel of Matthew, and we're going to unpack that next week when we talk about God's kingdom um, in heaven and on earth, right? And so when we talk about the heavens for the people, it was up there. The heavens are up there. And so you lift your hands to the heavens when you pray. You lift your eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? We look up when we pray. Um, and the idea, of course, where this originated from was that the earth was flat and underneath was water. And then there was this dome up above and there was the atmosphere that we breathe, and then above the clouds is the realm where the stars are, and beyond that is water, and then God is above all of that, and he holds all of that in his hands. In the heavenly realm, he calls out the stars one by one, and he brings them forth every night. This was the concept that God was over everything. So, who art in heaven means God is over everything. Um, and in all of this is in the grasp of his hands. So on the one hand, it's a statement about the transcendence of God, how big God is, how glorious God is. Let me just show you. This is how some scientists uh, envision our universe. It begins right in the middle, 13.7 uh, billion years ago with the Big Bang, so it goes. And you would think that everything then is moving at the speed of light, 13.7 billion, um, billion miles in every direction, but it doesn't actually work that way because the universe expands faster than the speed of light. So they say it's about 78 billion light years in either direction from the middle, which is 156 billion light years across the universe. Light travels at 186,000 miles a second. So that means that if you could travel at 186,000 miles per second, it would take you 156 billion years to get across our universe from one end to the other, and God is beyond all of that. And he's overseen it all, and it's in his hands. Each of these dots represents a galaxy one of the galaxies that we know of, and our galaxy has somewhere between 100 and 400 billion stars in it. And so you're talking about billions upon billions of stars, and God's got the entire universe in his hands. And so on the one hand, there's the glory of God, our Father who art in heaven. You are glorious. You rule over all creation. There's this awesomeness when we pray this, our Father in heaven. At the same time, the word for heaven is the word uranos, uranos, 
which kind of sounds a lot like our word Uranus, Uranus, which Uranus, which is the name of one of our planets, and that means the God of the heavens. Uranus means God of the heavens in Greek mythology, and it became one of our planets. And so he's the God of all the heavens, but at the same time, Uranus can also be used to describe the atmosphere around us. So nine times in the Greek or Hebrew equivalent, it's used to describe the air or the oxygen that we breathe. And so here we're talking about the imminence of God, that God is as close as the air you breathe. I love this. When I pray the, the Lord's Prayer, I imagine the, the, the greatness of this paradox, that God is above this universe, and yet he's as close as the air I breathe. How, what an awesome thing. And so this takes us to the last part of, uh, that we're going to explore today. Let's say this part together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, what does that mean? We say that all the time. Who, who uses the word hallowed in their everyday language and nomenclature? You're at school. Hallowed. Hey, hallowed friends. We don't really use that word. So what does this mean? We pray it all the time. So to hallow means to make holy, to, to, to revere, to recognize as awesome, beautiful, good, righteous, holy, to imbue respect, to hallow God's name. What's interesting is that we're actually praying that God would hallow his name. And this is the first request, the first petition in the prayer. God, hallow your name. May your name be hallowed. And when we say name, God's name, we really mean God. God be hallowed. Uh, we're speaking about him. Another way this is translated is uphold the holiness of your name. And so I want to remind you that when we're talking about upholding the holiness of God's name, the opposite of that, of course, is to profane God's name or to take God's name in vain. So one of the Ten Commandments is you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. To take God's name in vain means to misuse it. Um, uh, a more modern translation puts it like this. Do not use the Lord your God's name as if there were no significance. So many times we, use, we misuse God's name. We profane it in ordinary ways as a swear word. When I uh, am hammering something and I hit my thumb with a hammer, I might cry out and, and say God's name in vain, right? So can you just imagine, put yourself in God's shoes, that if every single time somebody got frustrated or injured themselves or got mad at something, that they just yelled out your name. Wouldn't that be weird? Like, ah, Chris, ah. Like that, I mean, to have to listen to that all the time would be annoying at best. Um, but there are other ways in which, of course, we profane God's name. Um, of course, yelling God's name when you smash your thumb isn't the more serious way of profaning God's name. A more serious example is when we use God's name to justify things like war or slavery um, or like flying an airplane into a building, things like that. 
that's a much more way, uh, serious way of profaning God's name, to attach it to something that God has nothing to do with and to, and to use God's name to justify um, wrong actions or evil and claim it as God's work. So when we pray like this, we are yielding to God. Hallowed be thy name. We are yielding to God, asking God to hallow his name. So anytime you see the word thy in the Bible, it stands in contrast to me or my, right? So to say, may your name be hallowed means to say, may your name, not my name, be hallowed, right? So why does, and so why is this matter? Because I grew up learning to hallow my name. We all do. Our whole world teaches us to hallow our names. From the time we were little kids, we want people to like us. We want them to think good things of us. We want our parents to say nice things about us, as well as our teachers and our coaches. We want other people to think that we're cool or we're popular, whatever it might be. And so when we grow up, this doesn't stop. The clothing that we wear is about impressing people or conveying a certain kind of image or so that people think certain things about us. Sometimes we even pick out our cars wondering how will other people perceive me in this car. Isn't that ridiculous? It is, but it's, it, we're, we all swim in the same water here. We're all in it. Um, or the neighborhood that we live in or the vacations that we take or the things that we post on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. All of it is this lifelong effort to communicate an image. We're always trying to get people to think about us in a certain way. So much of our lives is spent trying to hallow our names. So when I pray, Lord, hallow be thy name, this is the first petition. May your name be great instead of mine. I'm yielding my ego to you is essentially what we're saying. I'm yielding my ego to you. The Bible says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Take the lowest seat, the banquet table, Jesus says, and someone will invite you to the place at the table. Praying this way is a way of shaping our hearts and yielding to God. I love the way Psalm 115 puts it, and we've probably sung this song before. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your own name give glory. And then Psalm 34 says it like this, Magnify the Lord with me. Together let us lift his name on high. So here's the second idea on this. Why do we have to pray for God's name to be hallowed? Isn't his name already hallowed? I mean, doesn't everybody already know that God is awesome and glorious and majestic and abounding in steadfast love and slow to anger? The answer, of course, is no, actually. Not everybody does know this, right? Whenever I, I talk with um, an atheist or an agnostic about faith, almost invariably the reason for people walking away from faith or to not have any interest in God is because of the people of faith that they've encountered along the way. And they'll share individual examples of Christians who were cruel or unkind or judgmental or hypocritical. And, and then we move into the kind of bigger categories of the Crusades and the Inquisition or, or you know, things like that. Um, or Catholic priests um, and church covering up 
injustice. These are all ways in which we profane the name of God, but it also looks like every time um, other people who knew that we're a Christian or we're part of MOPC and, and we were rude or unkind to them, we've all profaned God's name. So when I pray, hallowed be thy name, I'm asking God, I'm asking God to, to help me to make God's name holy by how I live my life. Um, I'm asking God to help me show other people what God is like. Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they would see your good works and give glory to your name no give glory to the father in heaven like by your good works people will see how good is our god and by unfortunately our uncharitable works they will see a profane god i think about when i think about this i think about miss betty i didn't know miss betty I had, um, I prayed with her before she passed away, but how many times have I heard in the last several weeks somebody say that I love God today because Miss Betty was my Sunday school teacher, and she taught the kindergarten class for over 20 years, and she was known by everybody in this church as Miss Betty, and it wasn't just the content that she taught, but it was the love that she gave. She showed those kids. She hallowed God's name in her desire and in her effort um, to serve the church. And so I just want to encourage you uh, as we close to think about when you pray the Lord's Prayer. I hope that you'll pray it every day this week, maybe even three times a day like our, f our first century um, ancestors of our faith. When you say, Our Father, I want you to remember that He's our Father. He's our Father. Uh, and that he loves you relentlessly and fiercely. And when you pray, who art in heaven, I want you to imagine that he is beyond the universe, 156 billion light years across. He holds it all in his hands, and he's closer than the air you breathe. And when you pray, hallowed be thy name, I want you to understand that this is a call from God for you to hallow his name each and every day. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are perfect and that you are good. Help those of us who are dads to be more like you and forgive us when we fall short. Help us to develop an intimate relationship with you that we might call you dad and that if we have things to work on in our own lives, that you'll be patient with us if we can only get ourselves to say parent. But work with us in that. Help us. Give us your grace that we might see that you are our perfect father and mother and call you as such. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.